I sit down with Allison Duncan today, who's the creator of Amplifier Strategies. They help philanthropists and social enterprises become more strategic and impactful. She was originally a CPA. She moved to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and she's found her path helping all types of organizations. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She helps run the program at Battery Powered. She's just good people to spend time with. So, Allison, thank you for being on our podcast and making it happen. Thank you. Thank you. And you're a busy woman. Um, But all the interaction I've seen with you when you speak, you're mindful, you're articulate, you're settled, you're motivated, you're a wicked smart woman. So my first question for you is, I'd like to know where this laser focus comes from. Well, Is that a loaded first question? (laughs) That is a loaded first question. First, I should say thank you. It seems you must be working for my mother. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She called earlier. Great PR. (laughs) Um, So I appreciate that. Um, I think that uh, you've seen me at at Battery Powered, which is a program that Amplifier created with the Battery Club and Michael and Zochi Birch. And in that environment, one of the things that I realize is that we have an opportunity to open people's hearts and minds to things that are not in their everyday flow. So they go to work, they come, they come to be inspired, but we need to prepare them to be able to receive a whole new set of information and to have the room to find what's relevant for them. And so in that case, um, when I, when I go on stage at Battery Powered and I, and I address the group, I'm, I'm focused on the invitation for everybody in the group to be able to get settled themselves. So I think bringing the energy that I want and have fun and engage and feel like they're loved and safe. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a little bit about just wanting that to be there for everybody else, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, that's exactly how I'm receiving it, uh, like you said. Uh, it, it is settling to see somebody, um, you s- I don't know if it's performance, but it doesn't feel like a performance. It just feels like a real conversation. That's a true skill, but it has to be up there, too. <laughs> you just have it, and it's really cool to watch. Thank you. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I kind of always investigate, even myself, um, you know, where some of this... Um, you know, motivation might have come from. I mean, you've, you've had a neat path. You were um, originally a CPA, then you started working with the um, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation yeah. before even going on to start your own firm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, even earlier on, I mean, are you from the Bay Area? Are you from, um, I'm from Missouri, a very small little town. So I'm always kind of curious where people, it, it doesn't, it, who, who cares where they're all from, but I'm curious where you're from. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like small town people find each other. So <laughs> now I grew up in a town in South Carolina called Six Mile, 500 people. And I had the same teachers that my mom had. And, you know, my grandmother's friends were the lunch ladies. And it was a really, really small uh, yeah. southern town. And, um, and was really one of the first people in my family to go to college. And so the CPA thing was like, oh, wow, I'm going to University of South Carolina. I right. get a chance to study. 
where can I get a job? Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was just kind of um, a path that was set for me very much practically, like how mm-hmm. I set it for myself, like this is a place that I could get a job and I could build a career and it seemed approachable and understandable. Mm-hmm. But then I think uh, while I was, in, uh, was studying at the University of South Carolina, I got a passport and I went on my first international trip and it was a service trip to Moldova. Cool. And yeah, d- Eastern Europe. And I look even now at like my journal from Moldova. Oh, wow. I didn't even know how to spell Moldova when I was going right. to Moldova. <laughs> and um, I went there and I worked in orphanages and uh, different um, rural communities uh, doing service work. And it opened up my eyes to something that I think as a... Um, as a kid from the South, that I, it was a revelation for me, which was that we're all the same. Mm-hmm. I think I had it that like, okay, I'm from here and we're different, mm-hmm. right? We're Southerners and, and mm-hmm. we're a certain way. But when I went to Moldova, which is former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Russian speaking, and, you know, realized that everybody was telling the same jokes and immediately, you know, a smile's a smile oh, yeah. and kids are kids. and. Yeah. And that we have an opportunity to share and to um, contribute to each other no matter where we're from. It like lit a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't start right away mm-hmm. because... Didn't start what right away? I didn't it, start this kind of journey of philanthropy yeah. and, yes. and you know, giving back right away because I still needed to do the practical work of Conscientiously, that job. were you like, I need to get make a, job. a base or form a, some sort of skill set? No, you're it, just... Get a job. Get a job, yeah. Yeah, get a job. <laughs> There was no net. Uh, I had <laughs> one of the first jobs I had out of college. I, I lived in London and then came back here. And it was for a community counseling service, CCS. And they're a professional fundraising company for nonprofits. And then I left here, went traveling, came back. I was like, check. I'm going to get a, a good job, a cool job, helping the world in uh, some sort of nonprofit here in San Francisco. There's tons of nonprofits. I could not get interviews. <laughs> I could not get in the door. Yeah. In a, you must have found that a struggle. Maybe I'm skipping too far ahead, but it's a tough space to be in. It's tough to break into, especially here in San Francisco, for sure. Uh, and it's, Why? And I know it doesn't <laughs> seem... Um, I think it's a good thing, though, that mm-hmm. the sector is professional in, an, in its own right enough that it knows how to really find people who are trained and relevant to deliver mm-hmm. the services that, you know. This is reminding me because I get emails almost daily. I am just leaving a Google job, and, but I have a passion for interior design. I think I should come work for you. Exactly. Like, no skill, no <laughs> yeah. experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a little bit like that. Although I think that just like with anything, even that example, if you found someone that was you know, it, doing it for friends and had a great portfolio mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they had gotten some classes, you'd want them on your team even though they were transitioning. It's yeah. the same in our sector. Yeah. We look for people who are, you know, ready to to go into the work in a real and meaningful way and people who are trying to cleanse their conscience or find themselves through the nonprofit sector really, um, you know, that... I wouldn't say, I mean, everybody, you know, I wouldn't say they don't belong, but that's not the, the appropriate entry point. I think the appropriate entry point is to, is to really commit to mm-hmm. training and developing yourself. So after Moldova, you started, did you, is that when you went to Deloitte? Yes. So I went I to have Deloitte. Some, yeah. Okay. 
as a, as a CPA? Yeah, well, yeah. you have to, you know, work and then pass the test mm -hmm. and become a CPA. So I went to Deloitte in the Carolinas. Uh -huh. And uh, Deloitte is an incredible organization for teaching professional skills and provide it's a meritocracy where you really can work hard and move up and get training it's extraordinary and uh, the one of the top partners in the Carolinas had been running the Russian practice and because Moldova was Russian speaking and I had been studying Russian Hands they put up. me beside him at yeah. the Christmas party to like oh. entertain him <laughs> And so Christmas party, and then, you know, February, I was working on my transfer to uh -huh. Moscow. And so that's, that, I mean, cool. it's real, though, you know, when you think about things wow. that change trajectories, uh -huh. the ser international service trip was a big, you know, it caused me to uh, open myself up to mm -hmm. a more world view and, uh, and then be willing to go for, I mean, growing up in Six Mile and then taking the first transfer I could get to Moscow in the in the mid 90s um, those were big trajectory changers for me and so it set my life on a totally different course and Deloitte um, you know is a in emerging markets they would really at those times provide opportunities for young professionals to test their skills in ways mm -hmm. that were big stretches for you yeah. or just have man people to manage you could manage you know so I was managing yeah. a big project and working um, on the front lines with uh, Russian owned companies that were growing so I had a chance to work uh, with growing and scaling entrepreneurs Russian entrepreneurs who were trying to raise the next round of capital like debt capital for growth mm -hmm. understanding uh, how those companies were growing their business processes and and consulting to them mid 90s you said yeah and so what I mean it, you sort of come out of come out of their political structure and it keeps moving but what's a good way to describe their economy or their it was the year the first financial crisis the big rush the ruble devaluation that happened after Yeltsin uh -huh. uh, that was like 97 I think or 98 mm -hmm. was when that happened um, so the economy it, it had been um, I would describe it as a wild west Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, very dangerous, but mm -hmm. hyper growth. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a lot of money trying to enter the market and invest in this growth. But then there it was very unstable and very dangerous. Was it like super capitalism? It was just like a rush of capitalism to yeah. take over yeah. communism. Yeah. And then it had to have an equitable balance later. Huh, I don't know if that's happened yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be on a podcast yeah. talking about the yeah, right. Putin and the yeah. equitable balance that yeah. doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Cut it, Robbie. There's <laughs> 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 always like some point in the podcast that I always say, and can we edit that out? I think he leaves them in though. Yeah. So I sound foolish. Anyway. <laughs> well, that's, uh, so how many years there? It's in, a couple of years. Yeah? Yeah, in and out. Um, oh. But then back to New York for a short stint, looking for the next place in Deloitte. So Deloitte has a way of bringing their, um, their management development uh, participants, so you're kind of a program, it was called the Management Development Program, bringing them back into the U.S. and then you find another post. And so I came back mm. into uh, New York and then to Silicon Valley. Mm and started working in Silicon Valley in 2000 mm -hmm. and 
And then so when did the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation so start? I was, yeah, I was, they're local. Yeah, they're I, local. I just Gordon a, Moore, founder of Intel. Yeah. First, so he's a really, really um, interesting person. I mean, Moore's Law and computing power doubling every 18 months. Right. And being one of the first, you know, hyperscale Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. I mean, he's extraordinary. But that organization is kind of like silently extraordinary, too, because... He was the first tech entrepreneur to donate half of his wealth. So before Bill Gates and the Giving yeah. Pledge and Warren Buffett, he was the first and he did it quietly. Right. Um, and he endowed this foundation, but he had a point of view that was much more around how philanthropy could be used to change systems and truly create systemic change rather than incremental change and just mm -hmm. donating to things mm -hmm. that you see and giving more to that. But actually, how could we fund in a portfolio with a strategy and mm -hmm. have the status quo totally shift. And that was his way of thinking. I think that it obviously must have come out of um, the way he developed his mind and what he learned by growing Intel. Um, but for me, you know, Deloitte was kind of learning about Silicon Valley and, you know, how are tech businesses built and bought and sold. Mm -hmm. And in 2000 and 2001, as you can imagine, there was a lot of buying and selling, not mm -hmm. as many IPOs and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, really learning about how tech businesses are funded, financed and valued and why they're purchased and the first aqua hiring and all of that, which are all trends that exist today, even though we're in a much more accelerated technology environment. But the same happened with philanthropy, and I think tech has changed philanthropy uh, mm -hmm. a lot, and Gordon Moore being one of the pioneers. So I had a chance to um, accept a job to be the head of program finance at the Moore Foundation. And, you know, it's one of those things I wasn't going to do uh, because it didn't seem on my career path. Mm -hmm. I even remember... At the moment, you still saw yourself where? Like, who knew? I guess yeah. I'd be a partner at Deloitte, maybe, you know, yeah, and the yeah. that was the trajectory, yes. right? But then, you know, I called all my friends and I described this I philanthropy, this, this yeah. and first we're like, what's a f that and yeah. foundation? <laughs> and, and then everyone that loved me was like, this is it, Allison, uh -huh. do it. And, yeah. um, and so I was like, wait a minute, I better pay Gosh. attention. And this is so you, like this is the, the, you know, the service that you all, you know, service leadership with finance, yeah. with innovation, like, you know, it, this is really your moment. This is one of those other opportunities that don't repeat themselves. Go for it. Mm -hmm. And we had a leading uh, female partner at Deloitte at the time. And I went to her and she was like, you know, we really appreciate you here and we'd like to keep you on board and you know, wouldn't want you to leave. So kind of doing that retain, recruit to retain conversation. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I said, if I were to call you in a year from now and tell you I want to come back, would you let oh. me come back? Yeah. And she said, we'd have your computer ready by lunch. Wow. And I said. I get chills for some reason. That's I really cool. A smart question. And I Nothing said, to lose. No, and I said, I have to go. Yeah, Thank you so much. She's like, wrong question, wrong answer. <laughs> no, and, but I appreciate it. You know, the authenticity and the honesty behind it and the support because that organization had invested in me. Mm -hmm. And I'm now in great relationship with some of the leading partners of Deloitte doing um, mission-driven work. They're on boards and we're having conversations around how the work I do today and and what they want to do as corporate citizens is relevant. So, you know, keeping that kind of 
relationship and connection mm -hmm. that good people can support each other even when they're in different places. I, I really admire that that support she gave. And so I went and yeah. I spent seven years at the Moore Foundation and it, that's where I got wow. the training in philanthropy. Okay, until 2007. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And then you started um, Amplifier Strategies. You're going to help philanthropists, social enterprises become more strategic and impactful. As I was working on this last night, I love the word impactful, and you do too. What does that mean to you, the word impactful? Well, it really means a change, right? Mm -hmm. And I've since come to learn that it can be positive or negative. So I should probably, you know, you know, edit that and say positively, positively impactful. impactful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, leaving an impact means leaving a mark. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? And so, you know, a change. And I, I think that, um, you know, to truly see that the investments that we're making in social good are mm -hmm. making a difference and helping without harm is something that we want to do. And I w I'd like to go back even to the Moore Foundation experience to, mm -hmm. to talk about that. I, you know, I, I, I saw that when you have enough capital to invest on an issue area, that you can really get outside of what exists today and start to think about, well, what kind of R&D is needed. Mm -hmm. So in the case of um, one of the initiatives that was really interesting that I got to lead while I was at the Moore Foundation was around uh, conservation. So there was a, they were funding mm -hmm. Conservation International to create something called the Global Conservation Fund. And it was to expand protected areas uh, around the world. And so countries that have tropical ecosystems that are threatened and fragile, and maybe they have red list species, mm -hmm. they need to protect those critical areas. Yes. But they also need to have a sustainable economy. And so in the political process, they can say, yes, we want to create these protected areas. But oftentimes, there would be no money necessarily for um, scientific studies or community engagement. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you know, a philanthropist being impactful would be looking for where there's political will, there was motivation, and there was an opportunity to provide advocacy and support with where countries are ready to move to do something positive, but they need the wraparound investments of research, of engagement, of informed consent of indigenous people, you know, so that people can, so that it, so how these policies are implemented are mm -hmm. actually effective, mm -hmm. so strategic and impactful. So that program expanded you know, tens of millions of protected area, uh, hectares of protected mm -hmm. areas around the world. And I think that it, it's an example of doing philanthropy well, because the, the work to make sure that it wasn't just something to greenwash or to talk about as a platitude, but it was actually effective. Yeah. And then it was going to protect the species and be relevant to the communities that live there uh, is critical. What are some of the, um, I guess, economic resistances you might have run up against? What are some examples of an indigenous population needs to have a job too? And you're asking them to maybe change their actions, but it, the solution was this. No, it's actually, it, I mean, th th it's very rare that you're asking indigenous populations to change their actions. Oh, it's more like... Corporations. Yeah. It's more like, hey, we're going to put a logging concession right in the middle of mm. your 
your land okay, yeah. and where you work and live because we're putting a protected area here and the logging concessions mm -hmm. over there and that that community is not even getting getting informed and is not participating in the consent process so it's more around how large um, you know corporations and governments do deals where local communities are not engaged. Mm -hmm. And that can have cataclysmic effects on those local communities. But for a portfolio of, I mean, like a Home Depot, let's say, which could be a great, you know, great company, but, you know, they, it doesn't really make a difference to them if it's in this place or that right. place. They and just shift some assets around or resources, natural resources. Yeah. In locations. That's all that this on the Is that really what you kind of brokered? It's kind of on a spreadsheet for them, right? Uh -huh. But in but for communities it's really important. So sure. I, I didn't broker that personally. What uh -huh. I did is fund through I mean Gordon Moore funded, but through my management, you know, funding the scientific work and the engagement work so that those protected areas could be demarked in a way that was sensitive and relevant and you know bringing people to the table. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot around the value and the importance of collaboration in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And you, you asked me about Amplifier. I started Amplifier because I really wanted to bring a more outcomes-oriented but collaborative model to giving. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see that even in the Moore Foundation at the time, and that organization has matured quite a lot in the last 10 years. So, mm -hmm. um, but even, even with them, they were a single funder, you know, on this, on things that they care about. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, they were working with multiple partners on the ground to bring multiple voices to mm -hmm. the table. But I think today that solo journey of that single big donor, um, is, is also something that needs to be transformed. Uh, is that part of what you want to do to modernize? Yeah, that's a part of it. Um, I can talk about that. Yeah, the, the, the question is, we were just talking before we started taping, that you have a passion for, to modernize philanthropy. And I was just curious what an old version of that would be and that what's your vision yeah. of a newer version. And you, you just used one yeah. to talk. So I think, you know, the old version would have been the kind of and, and it's not that it's bad, by the way. I just want to say that mm -hmm. old doesn't mean wrong or bad, mm -hmm. right? But the older version That's is... Perfectly said, to modernize. Right. To keep moving. Keep moving and mm -hmm. to include other options mm -hmm. as, as ways of funding. So, right. But, you know, if you look at um, the philanthropies that were created out of the Industrial Revolution and mm -hmm. all of that wealth, you know, back before in the 90s and prior... You know, they would make small grants to a lot of different organizations with those proposals coming directly to them, and they wouldn't have a strategy behind how they're selecting those grants and, other than, is this a good proposal? Is this a good organization? Is this a leader that we like? And that's, that's important. I, I want to say that's an important approach. But when you look across a system and you say, we want to change the status quo of this system, we need the advocacy, we need new financing vehicles, we need new um, technology innovations, and we need to implement new program designs, right? That's a lot of different things, and it doesn't always happen in one organization. Mm -hmm. And so if you look across a system um, and say, we want to have this strategy, we want to finance these multiple organizations, and we want to measure how they're doing, then that's the next version, and that's the more foundation version. I think today 
what we want to do is bring multiple stakeholders into that, including co companies, family philanthropists, crowdfunding, professional philanthropy or large-scale philanthropy mm -hmm. as well. So it's about really bringing, building a movement around mm -hmm. change and having a strategy that multiple people can fund into. And more hearts are More included. hearts, more hearts, more minds, more mm -hmm. innovation, and more commitment. I was um, thinking there, I mean, people love nonprofits, but there's so many people who, you know, they're not the big donor. They're not the, they're not the, $1 million check or the $100,000 check, the $1,000 check, but they love to get involved. I mean, can you think of ideas on how, you know, people who just have a passion for something can still get involved even though their, their means aren't as much? I guess? Oh yeah. I mean, so, so we were just talking about big systems change, yeah. right? So you went fairly yeah. micro yeah. and I'll tell you like, even on that, um, like for example, there's an organization called Watsi. Okay, and Watsi is a, basically a crowdfunding engine for funding surgeries in the developing world. Mm -hmm. So people who wow. need low-cost surgeries right. that are, um, you know, would be um, life-changing for them in terms of getting that surgery or not getting the surgery, and they don't have funding for it. So Watsi has built a platform to find those community health clinics or those, those health provider partners and to actually find those, um, those uh, patients. And like Kiva, which you may mm -hmm. know of, like Kiva, help those patients be uh, presented on the Watsi platform so that they can get funding for their surgery. And this is direct, impactful, um, and you know, transformative, both in terms of how money is raised for healthcare, and even, one one of the cool things that Watsi's doing is they're utilizing their um, their data to begin to make appeals for low cost universal health care uh, in some of these low resource environments in emerging markets. So, um, you know, supporting something as you know through an innovative platform like Watsi, a single family, and helping them build their positive data set that then they have the ability to go and advocate for big large-scale change, that's how a single person can participate in something like what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Same thing with battery-powered. You know, we present pretty big, uh, you know, um, projects at battery-powered yeah. with, yeah, yeah. you know, big questions, but um, the minimum commitment is $4,000. Yeah. And, um, you know, picking and being a part of a group yeah, yeah. that's really trying to be smart. That's you cool. get a lot of positive feedback yeah, yeah, from yeah. that, too. I love it. I'm, I've enjoyed every, you know, every moment I get to go sit in front of the experts and learn more about where the collective group's going to be giving their money, and I, and I enjoy the whole thing. It's you guys, you know, do a magnificent job. It's cool. It's really cool. I and mean, so, are, do you have other organizations you do a similar setup with? Is that a model that you use? It's not like. We aren't doing it elsewhere. We're actually looking now as to how to make it a model and where uh -huh. is it relevant. So it was Cl very, I mean, clubs. You know, clubs, right? Clubs are one, or uh -huh. you know, we're looking at a few other things. But I'll say that it was really innovative for Michael and Zochi to bring that into the Battery yeah. Club, and also to give us carte blanche to be able to design it the mm -hmm. way we knew that it needed to be designed to make it cool. I think that's the other part of modern philanthropy. Is I realized when I was working 
with my clients and with these foundations that people come into boardrooms and sit at tables and it's cutting them off at the waist and they're looking at a bunch of paperwork around why they should be giving to something mm -hmm. that they're actually supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that we should be not using our brain to, to truly be analytical about our decisions and we mm -hmm. should make great decisions. They should be evidence-based, but yeah. we can have fun That's while right. we're doing it. My friend Tyler, um, uh, Tyler from Wilkes Bash for Tyler Mitchell. He's he had a big fundraiser for Tony Hawk. Yeah, we, we did the decor for this right next to a big trick ramp. Yeah, it was so rad. But you know he's giving the toast um, while all the donors were sitting around and saying, "Well, if I'm going to work this hard at something, raising money, I'm going to have fun." Better it's, be. It's fundraising. It's fun but, um, raising. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's lame. I know, but it's true. Like. Uh, perhaps um you know maybe it's generational or perhaps you know people just want to have a better experience yeah, they and do th and they'll be more motivated to you know take up um you know take up uh, projects and, and give more money and the proof is in the numbers i mean we have more than yeah. 750 members and we've given more than 10 million dollars out of the club in two years yeah. And that's new money activated. And that's not the real story. I mean, the real story is what's happened when members have gotten involved with uh, different organizations afterwards. So, for example, Crisis Text Line. Um, mm. Shortly after winning $500,000, the Battery Powered Award, uh, during the mental Cr health Crisis team. Text Line, which one's that? Oh, they can text. The organization that actually is providing... Um, crisis uh, conversations through text. So someone right. can text in. I'm they don't have to talk. They don't have to like talk. Which is a, somewhere safe it's in, safer. The, in the house and they don't have to be called out in a dangerous situation. Right. That's crazy. It's good. Yeah. It's very good, crisis text line. And it's actually the top winner from Battery Powered. But ever? At, ever, so far, 500,000. We actually did a unique thing where we have like a 250,000 limit but then we did a double, like which organization should have double awards so that they could grow. Mm -hmm. And they, they were the breakout winner from that. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, that organization raised, I think it was 20, $22 million. Get out. Yeah. So it really... Because it put them on the map. It's, well, in I, front you know, of a lot more people. Obviously, the organization's amazing and the right. executive director's amazing, but momentum matters. You know, trajectory right. and endorsement matters and introductions matter. And the, the people in the club got really behind Nancy, uh -huh. uh, the executive director, and uh, supported her. To, and she closed a big round after that. And that's not the only story. We have a lot of things um, that nature. What and are I, some other stories of organizations you've just really been blown away by? Maybe outside of the battery. Give me yeah. some more battery ones and give me some other ideas too and some well, of the other projects I, you're working on. I'd love to go back to the systems change and give you an example yeah. on that. So, um, so to make it real, you know, right. how do we do you know, philanthropy 3.0 or modern philanthropy? Mm -hmm. There's an organization called BRAC that is in Bangladesh, and they are actually the world's largest NGO, mm -hmm. and they, uh, they've been... Uh, elected several times as the number one most effective NGO in the world. And they created a program that was focused on what they call the ultra poor. And the ultra poor are a category of families within the extreme poor. So the World right. Bank says the extreme poor are like $1.90 a day. Uh -huh. The ultra poor would be like 30 cents. So Gosh. chronic hunger, no formal means to make a living, no formal house in a home, kids are not in school. 
food insecure, which means they're maybe eating once every two, three days. And BRAC designed a program to find them and to deliver stipends, a productive asset, which is something they can make money with, like cows and chickens or sorry business or a small store, mm -hmm. and uh, give them coaching and training for a 24-month period. So give them some money for food, some money or, or yeah, assets to I, make money on, them, yeah. and some coaching. And they've, they've graduated, as they call it, a million and a half families out of extreme poverty from this. Uh, what country? In Bangladesh. In Bangladesh. So then that was tested in 10 other countries to see if it would work in other places. And it yes. did. Yeah. Yeah. So the research came out May 2015, was studied by uh, MIT and Yale on, they call it RCTs, a randomized control trial. This, does this work for mm -hmm. these people in these 10 other places? And it did. And it showed like um, Nick... Um, Christoph from uh, New York Times, he said that this was like one of the only proven pathways out of poverty. And so we found that research and that organization and the group of people that had been testing it around, around the time the research came out. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's back this and let's build a strategy to bring family philanthropists into it and let's have it grow. So we created a program called Uplift and when you say we, this is Amplifier, Amplifier. and its partners. So and Amplifier its partners. and its clients yeah. created Uplift. So you have vehicles for your clients. Yes, we create gotcha. vehicles for them. So we created Uplift, and since we've raised about $17.5 million, and we have been giving grants to the organizations that are trying to reach the ultra-poor. Mm -hmm. And Uplift is basically... A a portfolio. We're a, we're a movement, a champion for the ultra-poor. We want to see ultra-poor families recognized and prioritized in countries where they live, and we want to do the advocacy and the fundraising and the training so that people can get access to the knowledge on how to implement this highly, highly effective program. And so we've been funding this network of partners, and we've been fundraising, and it's extraordinary. Uh, Sounds like it. We thought that in the beginning we wanted to have 20 countries and a million families in five years get out of ultra poverty. Mm -hmm. We now have 66 countries trying to find different ways to implement graduation programs and new pilots starting all the time. So Uganda is getting ready to scale up a very large implementation, Tanzania, Kenya, India, it's growing. Um, right now, Chantal, who's our chief digital officer mm -hmm. in Amplifier, She's in the Philippines working with a partner. And, and the other thing that we're doing is we're developing technology for how to bring the cost down and the transparency up around these families getting out of poverty so we can raise even more money and deliver the program even more cost effectively. And we're working with all the partners on that. So that's how we bring our kind of Silicon Valley technology innovation to bear, the fundraising oh to bear, the marketing. But we rely on the partners who are excellent already. So it's like, how do you amplify them? And um, so that I love that project. Uh, mm -hmm. Shafali Puri, who was formerly leading uh, innovation at Nike Foundation, she accepted to be our CEO. Uh, we have Anne Hastings, who's our global advocate. She was the co-founder of Funkose in Haiti. So we have an all-star team. Yes. And we're just, you know, 
going. Making change. Making change. And so that's another way, you know, people can hear, hear this podcast can be involved if you're interested in ultra poverty um, and want to work on technology, design, marketing, fundraising, or want to give to one of the most effective ultra poor programs. That's, you know, it's exciting. And Michael and Zochi Birch are a part of it. Uh, we, you know, we built battery powered with them and for them at the battery, but they also supported this project. They saw in it something special and have supported it philanthropically. Where do you think, you know, you've mentioned them a couple of times, they're phenomenal people. There's lots of, um, I think successful people that turn to philanthropy and like something motivates them and moves them or they've got some sort of trait, Yeah. you know, and others don't. You know, but what do you think the trait is? Or, or what do you see as a common thread woven between some of these professional people who've had extraordinary professional success and then now tackle a new kind of life's work, if you will? Well, not speaking about them specifically, but in mm-hmm. general, I think that there's both a feeling, a desire, a true desire to want to give back. And I think they have that. But mm-hmm. a lot of people like come to privilege and, you know, wealth and they realize that they didn't get there on their own. And they know that uh, they, they recognize the opportunities that other people gave them and they want to give those opportunities to people who are coming along. And so there's that, you know, genuine feeling of wanting to give back that's there. I also think that there's uh, a curiosity around these problems like how to solve some of these tough problems that like it doesn't a lot of the problems that we're dealing with are unnecessary totally right. and so if you're an entrepreneurial you know innovator right and you look you at have a some, brain like that like, you have a brain like that you got to work on that yeah. you're like you don't want and so there's some people arrive at these enough moments where they're just like yeah you know yeah. like look i if i'm gonna fundraise and and champion and advocate for something this, this is, is it. One, like, yeah. we need to change the human. The, we're one human family, yeah. and we, we can't have people at this level mm-hmm. of human suffering, right? Yeah. So is that enough moment? Mm-hmm. And then I think um, there's also just um, inspiration. Like, they meet another leader who's, you know, that they want to get behind. And I think that, you know, in particular, if going back to Michael and Zochi, um, you know, Michael often tells the story of how inspired he was by Scott Harrison of Charity Water mm-hmm. and that, you know, Scott mm-hmm. really activated him. And that's why one of our key premises at Amplifier and through the battery is uh, activating generosity. You, there's a, you, you need to think and get to know someone and figure out what it's going to take to have them believe in themselves that they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. So that... That's it, essentially, right? Is, you know, Jeff, like, what do you not believe about yourself mm-hmm. that we're going to change that you can really make a huge difference in nurturing that call? Yeah, there, there must be a, a point when uh, people themselves, I mean, they, they, I, they say to themselves, I have enough, and now I must move on and help the other ones. I got to pull the rest of them up on the ship. You know, I've got to drop down the ladders and life's been so good to me so far. Now I must champion, you know, but people arrive at that, I'm sure at different times. I'm sitting here thinking there's actually an amazing generosity, certainly surrounding us in this city, in our, like our microculture. Yes. Um, Can we say that that still exists uh, countrywide? Yes. And, and is it, 
more amplified than other countries around the globe still because no. you could no <laughs> i no. i think that it lives in i mean maybe yes it's more i mean uh, you know americans are known for their generosity right yeah. of course at the same time i think it's innate in all of us to want to be a contribution mm -hmm. and it's around whether or not you have the privilege and opportunity to have that nurtured and in our microculture that being a contribution is certainly being nurtured but i found that um, you know, it's certainly when I go back and I share with my family uh -huh. in South Carolina, you know, about uplift and the ultra uh -huh. poor, you know, they're like, go get them. This, yeah. you know, like this, you know, this is, you know, they, they are dialed in and moved mm. and contributing and doing oh, what cool. they can, you know? So, and, and I think, you know, I see it around the world and I even see it in the countries where the ultra poor live. And in fact, if you look at the data, um, people who have less give more, right? Yes. So this whole idea, one of the things that about arriving to the place, it's like asking ourselves each individually, what, how much am I going to need before I can start to be a contribution as a meaningful and focused part of my life? You know, how much more do I need to get myself before I can begin to focus on this? And can I start to do that earlier than I thought? And I think life becomes so much more rewarding when we build our skill of being effective. And that's why we, you know, at Amplifier, it's, it's about amplifying human potential. We want people like me and you to see themselves as people who can make change. And then they're willing to invest in themselves as being great at giving back, not just their money, but their time their support, their ideas. And, you know, it's like any kind of 10,000 hour thing. Mm -hmm. um, the more you put mm -hmm. into it. You start to become an expert. Yeah. And, and then more it's, effective. And that's, that kind of expertise is really, really, um, you know, it gives back mm -hmm. to the person who, who develops it a lot. Totally different subject, but here's an interesting question for you. The workspace and environments, maybe that you, some of the teams you work with, and even yourself in the workspace you work with, um, how does that even affect um, uh, group thought and, and movement and change? Um, I've, I've had a podcast a couple of days ago, and the woman said that she's actually going back to having her door so she can focus, you know, instead of having a, the open cubicle. I mean, those are just two random uh, examples. But do you see anything like with workspace? and effectiveness when you're getting down to it and getting work done? Well, we have, you know, a team here in San Francisco and then, but the majority of our team is distributed and global. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've focused a lot on digital workspace. So having great up, you know, speed and being able mm -hmm. to connect and see each other, it's mm -hmm. super important. I do think, um, you know, one, we don't, we're paperless, so we don't mm -hmm. keep stuff in paper and we don't have a lot of things. Our desks are all clear and clean. And Gosh, it, that'd it, be wonderful. It does provide for, to really engage because we don't have a lot of stuff in the way that we're bringing, we're bringing ourselves. I remember one time my mom told me when I was trying to prepare for, you know, a presentation and I wasn't very prepared and I didn't have my props. And she was like, Allison, you don't need equipment. You are the equipment. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about workspace and our people. Our mm -hmm. people are the inventors and the inspirers of the change we're going to make. It's nothing on the paper. Mm -hmm. And so we really try to keep it minimalist. 
and provide an environment that has color and light and ability to see far mm -hmm. so that they can have big visions. Mm -hmm. And so I do think the more constrained that you can see and the more stuff you have around you, the more constricting it can be. And mm. certainly open space that facilitates a lot of dynamism provides for a lot of creative um, interaction. I hear that. That's my opinion. That's great. That's the way we um, try to do it. We, I always ask everybody the same question. Maybe I'll change it up one day, but I'm going to ask you anyway as our final question. Um, what is your favorite room in your house? Because I'm an interior designer, of course, you know. Um, what is your favorite ha uh, room in your house and why? So. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, that's great. Uh, my favorite room is that we have an open kitchen and dining room. Mm -hmm. And it's because we can all be in there. Food is being served. But we also are very fortunate to have a very big view yes. of the San Francisco skyline. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so I love being able to look at my family and then look out yeah. at the sunset or sunrise and, and all the lights. And mm -hmm. so that like gathering space where people are being nurtured, it's, you know, it's safe and warm, but we can see. Mm -hmm. um, that's my favorite. Big line of sight. Big no line. dreams can go past an atmosphere. Exactly. The only thing that's constricting you <laughs> are low-lying clouds. <laughs> Otherwise, it's the stars, baby. Anyway, that, I'm, I'm so inspired by everybody I get to sit down in, in this uh, sit down with, and, and particularly you, um, was somebody who has uh, a degree or you started as a CPA and you've created something so magical and you're so passionate and this creativity pours out of you. Mm, thank you. And that's really a, a blessing for me to be inspired by and, and uh, it's just great to know you. So thanks for sitting down and having a podcast. It's rad. Thank, thank you, you, Jeff. Thanks for being a part of battery powered and also just for coming to learn about us and and using your platform to share this kind of work and choosing it I mean you can interview anything so choosing to talk about this and to share about it it's just fabulous so and I pleasure thank you let's just keep doing things together yeah, right we'll do like uh, eight months loop it again <laughs> thank you